Jesus Messiah, Lord of all, blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel. So many names, Jesus, but they all, we come to you with all that we have. You're our Savior. You're our friend. Help us to surrender to you each and every day. To invite you into our life. Give you all that we have. may be seated. Today, we bring an eight-week-long journey to a close. For the last two months, we've been digging into what is arguably one of the most mysterious, fascinating, captivating, debated, discussed, and most compelling books in human history, the book of Revelation. Just think about what we find in its pages that you don't find anywhere else. Things that have become a part of our cultural vocabulary with regards to the end of time. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. The Antichrist, tribulation, the infamous number 666, the second coming of Jesus, Armageddon, the great judgment. And, together, and today, we bring it to an end. The end that Revelation itself gives us. See, the book of Revelation is a series of visions given to a man named John by God. And God told John to record them and to give them to not only the churches in his day, but since they contain so much about the end of time, for the churches that would follow throughout time. And we've been going through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So, so how does it all end? After all of the darkness that we have looked at, what comes as the end approaches? Well, it doesn't end with any more darkness. In fact, it ends with light. The light of heaven itself. So let's dig in. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven. And a new earth, for the old heaven and old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But cowards 
unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars. Their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Four things that this tells us about heaven. First, it really is a new place. A new heaven and a new earth. The old heaven and old earth will be gone. Just as our resurrected bodies will be new, so will the heavens and the earth. Second, we are told that God will be with us. His home will be with us. And that's important to understand. You see, throughout history, theologians have talked about God's imminence and his transcendence. Imminence means close by, that God is not a, a distant God, but that he is by our side. But there is also the transcendence of God, that God is not only with us, but he's also separate from us. That God, that he comes to us from beyond this world, from outside of this world, bringing that which only he can bring. So when Jesus taught people to pray in what's famously known as the Lord's Prayer. He said to start off with something like this, our Father in heaven. Why did he start that way? Why not pray to a God of the earth, but to the God of heaven? Now, take all of that back into what we just read about when we experience heaven. There will no longer be a separation between us and God. So what will that mean? And among many other things, there will be no more tears. Everything broken in this world and in our lives will be made new. No more pain. No more sadness. No more grief. Not just the sadness, pain, and grief that the world throws at us, but the sadness, pain, and grief that we bring on ourselves. No more sin. No more failure. No more self-inflicted wounds. No more brokenness of any kind. But then there's a sobering note. And how many times have we gone through Revelation and found that there's this sense of judgment? We're told that, not, that heaven isn't for everyone. And John records that the judgment that falls on those who are, a part, who are part of that is called the second death. The first death is one that everyone faces, unless we're alive when he comes again. It's our physical death. But the second death is for those who, die, who died having rejected a relationship with God through Jesus. So at the end of time, they will experience a second permanent eternal death. As we talked about last week, at, at the Great Judgment, two books will be opened. The first contains our choices, our actions, our deeds, our decisions, what we have done and, and what we have not done. It's a book of accountability. And none of us, not a single one of us, has anything in those pages that would warrant heaven, that would warrant our salvation. It only makes clear our guilt. Written on its pages are the kinds of things that John records here. Cowardice, 
a lack of belief, corruption, murder, immorality, worshiping false gods, lying. But then we're told that there's a second book based not on our deeds, but upon grace, the book of life. And that no matter what is written in the book of deeds, the book of life is what matters. And finding our name written in the book of life rests on one and only one thing. Did we come to Jesus for grace, for forgiveness, for restoration, for relationship? If we are not in the book of life, if all there is for us is the book of accountability, the kinds of things in that list that John records, from that there can only be one result, the second death. But let's, let's talk about that for a second, about God and judgment. You see, we, we get this idea that God is supposed to be loving and that he shouldn't ever be mad at us or mean or judge us, but that because it doesn't sound very loving. In fact, it sounds sometimes as harsh, mean-spirited, and even rigid. But, but is it? It's important to understand that the Bible teaches that it's God's desire, it's not God's desire that anyone should experience eternal death as a punishment for their broken relationship with Him. The heart of God is that everyone would receive the gift of eternal life through Jesus. But we have a free choice to accept that gift or to reject it. There are consequences that come with our freedom to choose. God doesn't send anyone to an eternal death. We choose our own destination based upon our own free will. And in fact, this is how the Bible puts it. In John 3:18, he says, "Whoever believes in him is not condemned." But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And it's the same with the person who has chosen to embrace the Christian faith. The judgment of God will simply affirm their decision that has already been made. In fact, we have these words from Jesus himself. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. When someone asks, how can a loving God destroy someone? The answer is, God doesn't. We do it ourselves. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus was about what God was willing to do to save people from the consequences of our own decisions. But we have to take him up on that offer. If not, then eternal death is inevitable and because we have rejected heaven. Whatever the verdict is on anyone's life, it will be right and it will be good. Now, I know where maybe your mind might be going, well, what about those who've never heard about Jesus? Or those who don't have the mental ability to understand? Or what about infants or young children who may have died before having the ability to know or to even hear, much less to respond? Maybe perhaps 
deal people with special needs or cognitive challenges that would make them make truly understanding and embracing all of this nearly impossible. See, ultimately, this is answered in and through the very character of God. Either God is a good God, a just God, a fair God, or he's not. And if, if he is good, then he'll do the right thing by everyone based on their ability to hear and to understand and to respond. And what about those who can understand but have never even heard about Jesus? Someone who's never been told about Jesus. Well, that's, we read about that in the Bible in Romans chapter 1. Here's a little bit about what it talked about. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful and wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds, and, and animals, and reptiles. See, each of us can be held accountable by what, we can, be, what can be seen. The raw wonder of creation all around us is, is so intricate in its design that it, that it begs for the notion of a creator God. All persons will be judged fairly by God on the basis of their knowledge of Christ and their ability to respond that knowledge. The way, the truth, and the life is available to each and every one of us. Now, let's get back to heaven, because what comes next is, is something very interesting in detail. John writes this, the one, then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came and said to me, come with me, I will show you the bride, the wife, of the Lamb. And so he took me in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and sparkled like precious stone, like jasper as, as clear as crystal. The city wall was broad and high, with twelve gates guarded by twelve angels, and the name of the twelve tribes of Israel were, were written on the gates. There were three gates on each side, east, north, south, and west. The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked to me held in his hand a gold measuring stick to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. When, when he measured it, he found it to be a square, as wide as it was long. In fact, the length and width and height were each 1,400 miles. Then he measured the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick, according to the human standard used by the angel. 
The wall was made of jasper, and the, and the city was pure gold, as clear as glass. The wall of the city was built on foundation stones inlaid with 12 precious stones. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were made of twelve pearls, each gate from a single pearl. And the main street was pure gold as clear as glass. Now, all of the detail, I don't think, was necessarily meant to be taken literally as much as it was symbolically. You, you got to imagine you have John here. He's seeing this amazing city, and he's using the best he can as far as language of his day to describe it. It was, it was to tell us something very important, and, and here it is. First, heaven is the new Jerusalem the home for the people of God, and that it is going to be an amazing, a, spectac a spectacular place. And what a place it will be, sapphires, emeralds, gold, sheer overwhelming grandeur of it all. Some of the numbers may be symbolic, we don't know for certain, but 1,400 miles wide and long and high, there's room for any and all in heaven. The idea of the vision is that John was being shown the most amazing place imaginable because that's what heaven will be like. And then heaven is described even more through John's vision, less about what it will be like visually but, and more about what it will be like experientially. John tells us this, I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city. And the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day, because there is no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and, and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me a river with, water, with the water of life clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will, be, will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and the Lamb will be there and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads. And there will be no night there. No need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. Then the angel said to me, everything you have heard and seen is trustworthy and true. The, the Lord God who inspires his prophets has sent his angel to tell his servants what will happen soon. 
And there are several things here that, that stand out about heaven that I want to talk about. Eight, in fact, in particular, that, that you don't want to miss the beginning and the fact that there won't be a temple in heaven. Why, why is there no temple in heaven? Because everything about the temple was to mediate between us and God, to help us approach God in all of his holiness in the midst of all of our sin. We don't have that separation any longer when we get to heaven. All of this means is with a means to worship him, but none of that will be needed anymore. Nor will there be a need for light to come from any other source, so no, no sun, no moon. Everything will be illuminated by the light of God himself. Then John speaks of nations and kings. See, heaven is not a static place, but one filled with activity and adventure. We're also told that, that heaven will be free from all evil. That part of human story is over. The choices have been made and now sealed. Our decision to come to God through Christ will be the defining reality. And through the middle of it runs the river of the water of life. In many ways, when we look at this story, it's kind of a restored and renovated Garden of Eden. In John's vision, many of the things were present in the original garden are now present in heaven. Like the river of the water of life, similar to the one that flowed through the Garden of Eden. And then on either side will be the tree of life. There will be a tree of life set. There was a tree of life set in the center of the Garden of Eden, along with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was set aside as the one that Adam and Eve were told that they could not eat from. And the purpose was to see whether or not they would obey, whether they would follow God, whether they would trust him, or whether they would take it upon themselves to be their own God. And as we know, they ate from that tree. Part of their subsequent banishment from the garden was, was preventing them from continuing to eat from the tree of life. The tree of life gave just that, life without death to all who ate from its branches. But in heaven, the tree of life is planted on both sides of the stream, where all are welcome to eat from it and to experience life without death. And then we're told something that is probably a bit obvious. There will no longer be a curse upon the planet. There's, there's so much in that simple little statement. When Adam and Eve made a conscious, purposeful decision to reject God's leadership, to reject his love, to reject the relationship with him, all hell broke loose on earth. That decision radically altered God's original design for how the world would operate and how life would be lived on this earth. Theologians have talked about this as the fall. And, and talk about how we now live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is not the way that God intended it to be. Everything was collectively cursed. The whole world that we live in is sick. Which is why we have earthquakes and tidal waves, volcanoes and mudslides, wildfires and birth defects, famines, 
and pandemics. In heaven, though, no longer will there be a curse on anything. And then finally, we will get to see God's face. The Bible teaches that no one can look upon the face of God this side of heaven and live. In fact, when Moses asked to see God, he was told that he couldn't and live. He was only allowed to see the backside of God after God passed by. And when Moses did, when he came off of that mountain, the people ran from Moses in fear and absolute terror. He so radiated light and energy and power and majesty that the people were terrified. But in heaven, we will get to see God's face, something that no one else has been able to do. So how should we think about heaven? You know, when you, when you look at the movies and pop culture, you talk about things like white robes and, and wings and harps and halos and sitting on clouds. But maybe that's a wrong picture. Everything in pop culture that, that we look at that kind of sounds a little bit boring, stupid, maybe even just silly. Now, we will worship God, but for how long? Is, is heaven one hymn after another, one unending church service? I sure hope not. It, that doesn't sound all that much like heaven. Heaven's not one long church service. See, when the Bible talks about heaven and the worship that will be there, there will be a ceaseless, integral part of it. But you, you know how it describes heaven? Describes it as a raucous party. Not much like many of our church services. There will be feasting, dancing, drinking, at laughter. There it will be a party. And I once heard it put this way. Remember when it comes to heaven. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you of absolute perfection and bliss and fulfillment for you, which means that he has now been working on it for 2,000 years. And this comes from the God who created Turks and Caicos, Maui, the, the Swiss Alps, the Victoria Falls, the Great Barrier Reef, the Grand Canyon, Mount Everest, the Aurora Borealis. Think of that. Heaven is handcrafted for us by a God who created all of those things. Heaven is perfect intimacy, breathtaking beauty, and never-ending adventure. Action, excitement, exploration, joining with God in his pursuits and his exploits, and an eternity forged and crafted, filled and enabled just for us. It's going to be a place of ongoing learning, artistic expression. Some of us will be able to sing well for the first time in our lives. Exploration, discovery, community. The Bible speaks of reigning with Christ in heaven. And reigning is a verb. It means to help reign. What are we going to reign over? I don't know, to be honest with you, but, but God and all that he has created is bigger than any of us could possibly ever imagine. The Bible talks about people who are faithful here on earth being put in charge of things in heaven. It even talks about the fact that those in heaven will command the angels. Imagine that. The Bible speaks 
of power and possessions and pleasures. Jesus promised that those who sacrificed on the earth would receive a hundred times as much in heaven. Now, some of you may be wondering the ultimate heaven question. Will my pet be in heaven? The answer, of course, is cats will, of course, be there. Other dogs, I don't know. But cats will absolutely be there. So how does it all come to an end? What is the final vision, the final words of the book of Revelation? After ending with all things heaven, what else could there be to add or to say? And simple, really. Revelation is a series of prophecies, of things that are going to happen. So what, why are prophecies given? To warn us, to help us to get ready, to be prepared, and if needed, to repent. Revelation began with the words of Jesus, and it ends also with the words of Jesus. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed are those who obey the words of prophecy written in this book. Look, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this message for the churches. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let anyone who hears this say, Come. Let anyone who is thirsty, Come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. He who is faith, a faithful witness to all these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, we pray that prayer. This world is so hard. Sin abounds. We struggle every day. It is only through you that we can survive. So we pray, Lord Jesus, come soon. Amen.